Wish you knew more about the medical device industry and how you can do your job more effectively and put your career on the fast track? Then stay tuned while industry veteran Pat Cothy shares strategies and tips from customers and company insiders who help drive the industry. Now let's join Pat as he explores how you can master medical device. Welcome. I'm excited about today's guest, Daniel Powell. Daniel's the CEO of Spark Biomedical, a startup company that developed and is in the process of launching a neurostimulation device to provide patients relief during opioid withdrawal. Obviously, this is a big problem, and Daniel and his team have developed a solution based on a proven technology. We're going to hear more about Spark and some of the challenges they face and how they were overcome, but a lot of this episode is devoted to the product development process, specifically customer discovery. This is an area that can lead to smooth launches or product disasters. Product development and product launches are never perfect, but doing customer discovery and doing it well will increase your probability of success. I'm happy to have Daniel join us because in the past 25 years in two separate industries, he's been involved in customer discovery, both in large and small companies, and has shaped his philosophy based on different systems he was taught, but then he modified them based on his hard-earned experience. Here's our conversation. Daniel, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Pat. I appreciate it. So we all have a a story about how we navigate the early parts of our career, but yours is pretty unique um, because you you started outside of the medical device industry. Can you share how you got started in the early part of your career? Sure, absolutely. And I had a boss once told me I took the scenic route, but that was okay. Um, Yeah, I'm a business major uh, from Texas A&M and got an accounting degree, which then, you know, you have to go what was called the big eight became the big six accounting firms is what four of them now. Uh, that was the only career path and it just didn't match my personality or for me. Um, so I, I, I like technology. I was really into that. And I kind of found this merging with information technology, uh, and information systems. And so went to EDS, uh, electronic data system, Ross Perot's old company, and then on to KPMG, where I became a consultant doing cybersecurity, enjoying it, enjoying kind of the mix of information and new systems. And the, but really, I was just enjoying learning new stuff. The moment the moment I learned it, I just wanted to go do something else. Then, what, what kind of stuff? What kind of stuff was interesting on the learning side? I loved learning about hacking. <laughs> just ah. a, we had a we had a security lab with all the different operating systems and. Uh, all the different kinds of servers. And so we could kind of create mock boxes. And I feel like fell in love with the idea of putting a honeypot out on the network. So it's a vulnerable computer that lure people in. Security is really hard to sell because like, you know, when insurance works, I ran my car into a wall, they paid for the fender to be fixed. Insurance is worth its worth investment and uh, security, especially in those days, you spend all the money and you don't know if you got hacked or not. When you, you only know when it really went bad. You don't know how many times it saved you. Also working for KPMG, I got to see many companies, not one. So I got to see an oil company and a food company and a, you know, whatever, a transportation company versus just one industry. Uh, strangely, never had a gig in medical, uh, actually. So I, I went through a midlife crisis at 26 and decided I need to open internet gaming cafes because that was all the rage. As anybody knows, I always say that was a fantastic way to lose a lot of money. So I, I kind of found myself figuring out where to go with this entrepreneurial endeavor that failed. And I, I swore I'd never be an entrepreneur again. I just was going to take the paycheck. It just didn't work. Now, I, I look back. I didn't do any homework. I just thought, like, I know about computers and I like computer games. So I'm going to open a retail store. Horrible strategy, right? And I didn't. I didn't go to industry trade events. I didn't teach myself how to be a store owner. Heaven forbid I'd been slightly successful and still been doing that today, though. So maybe it's best I just washed out. I was looking for a job and the, the director of electrical engineer for a neuromodulation, neurostim medical company used to come in and just like hang out and play World of Warcraft in the store. And we became friends. And he's like, you know, there's an opening in our software department. 
And so with no background in medical, but a lot in IT and building websites and apps and things that not apps back then, but software, uh, I got hired as a software analyst at uh, St. Jude Medical. And that was my intro. And I fell in love. I They sent me down to training and I trained with all the sales reps. And I always loved medical too. I mean, like I love biology and I thought I just, I'm not studious enough to be a doctor or anything like that. So it wasn't ever in the cards. I used to always buy the little skeletons and take them apart and glue them all together. Models. I had all the different sets, the ear, the nose, the eyes, that stuff. So when I started learning how electrical stimulation interrupts the neural pathways, blocks the, the, the gate control theory of passing the, the, the signal up and down the spinal cord. I was just in, and that just changed everything. I just ate it up and found home. So that was, that was 19 years ago, I think. So it was really my second career. So that first part of career, I always find that interesting because we're, we're kind of searching for what we want to do, but we're learning a lot about ourselves. What did you learn about yourself in that first five years uh, prior to getting into medical? Yeah. I mean, I learned, I learned, I had a lot to learn. I mean, I would go through and okay, well, maybe I'm going to be a database analyst because I like data and maybe I'm going to be this and you would test it and be like, but yeah, it was, you're, you're absolutely correct. I was searching, searching for who I would grow into professionally. I learned I was a really bad manager. I got my first management gig and I, again, just sort of, I didn't really have training not knowing how to really properly coach people, give them feedback, manage the schedules or, you know, all the in conflict. Uh, so that was, that was kind of that awareness of I'm not good at this and I need to learn it. I, I, I share kind of what you're saying. If you're not trained and no one gives you uh, a pathway to, to learn these things, you're just floundering. Uh, you're just, you, you think you, you, you think it's the next step that you're going to do. I'm mean, okay. Now I'm going to manage people, but if no one trained you how to do it, you're just not going to be good at it. And, and in America, and, I say American businesses as a whole are horrible at this. You just, pr you promote up the lead guy who's been there longest or, or lady. And it's like, no, you got to train them or they that might not be their skill sets, but you made management seem so important because it gets more money and more status people skip out on their career track that they're personally wired for. And you've probably seen this over and over and the, the technical engineer wants to be the manager engineer and they don't have management skills and they should just not have gone down that path. Well, let's talk a little bit because you work for, you know, K KPMG is pretty, pretty, pretty big company. What kind of training was there? Was it just technical training? Probably, probably the best training they that really got me to where I am today actually was from KPMG and that was user needs elicitation. So you're going to go into a client and you're going to listen and hear what they're not telling you and, and figure out what the real problem and pain is and begin to solve it. And I, I think, and there was other training, there's management training, some and technical training, but I really being able to go in into a brand new business that you don't really have any background in and just start to absorb and, and listen. And, and I, I, I had pretty good, mentoring and pretty good uh, examples that were just pretty high, high end group. Um, so let, that was really good. Let, let's shift gears a little bit and go, go um, into your medical career because you spent a lot of that in marketing, but 15 plus years of that is, has been in marketing. I came in as a software analyst. We were, I had to interview the marketing product manager that I would be working with on the other side. And I was asking him all the questions on eliciting requirements. And he had, he was like from some big fancy firm, kind of, kind of like a KPMG, but there's sort of the rote consulting stuff he was throwing down. And I was like, that's not how you really do user needs. Like it was, it's a cute graph, but I remember I was kind of, I didn't even know I'm giving my feedback to the vice president. And I was like, cute graph, but like, can he really, can you really figure it out? I had also won invention of the year because I figured out how to do something with a stimulator that everybody said couldn't be done. And I just kept asking people till I found an engineer and went, well, you could do it this way. I had a little street cred from that and uh, they decided to give me the job. So they did offer it to him and he turned it down just to be honest. <laughs> then they, they uh, offered me the job and suddenly I was in marketing. And two weeks later we were launching deep brain stimulation in Europe 
And next thing I know, I'm in the field launching a brand new product globally overnight. It was, it was a really cool experience. Were you trained in marketing? No, uh, accounting, just the opposite. My wife was the marketer, you know, she was always the creative. Where I naturally had the skills was upstream marketing. So requirement solicitation, meet the user needs, doing an analysis of the market. I'm not near as strong at the downstream marketing, voice to the customer, communication, branding. Um, but I had a respect for it. That's probably what helped is being married to a lifetime marketer and everything. I had a healthy respect for those skills and and then partnered well with those portions of the marketing department. What types of medical devices were you marketing uh, when you started uh, with down that track at St. Jude? So it was uh, deep brain stimulation, so neurostimulation. So we'd put wires inside people's brain to help their um, Parkinson's and essential tremor. So that was what, 2007, Six. 2010, somewhere in that range? Yeah, 2006 to 10. So at that point, what was going on? Was it, was it a new technology? Was it something that uh, was mature? We were second in the, it was a 30-year-old technology Medtronic led, and then we were second in market. Um, I had the pleasant experience of being at a company that went under an FDA warning letter. So warning letters are so destructive to new product development because you stop everything and you start fixing the, the back stuff. And we had problems and Kappas and all the different things to clean up for the FDA. So after about three, four years of absolutely no new product development, when we had the world's worst deep brain stimulation system ever launched in Europe and we were getting our rears kicked in by Medtronic. I, I survived about eight uh, reorgs and layoffs and I watched all my friends get fired and, and their careers destroyed. And, you know, they moved their family to Plano to be there and then they get laid off. And I just finally hit a point in time. It was time to move on. And uh, there's a great opening at Cyberonics, which did Vegas nerve stem uh, for epilepsy and went down there and ended up running global marketing for a couple of years and written, got to do full branding exercise. I really, and I had a really good right hand person, actually a whole team of them that really, we got to do some cool branding and cool, cool downstream marketing and rework everything. So it was like, a, it was like in one year I did like five years worth of marketing efforts. Uh, so it was really fun crash course. This is the ironic we had an investment in a German company doing auricular neurostimulation. I saw it and I said, that is ridiculous and it will never work. So the irony here is I'm CEO of a company doing auricular neurostim uh, that I mocked about six years ago. <laughs> We're all smart, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. I also thought you'd never be able to order a pizza off your phone. I was like, that's ridiculous. So I do miss a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of trends in the industry. I remember the first time I saw somebody marketing bottles of water. I thought, boy, that'll never work. <laughs> exactly. Marketing. So, yeah, marketing. It's a misunderstood uh, uh, thing. And, and quite honestly, I, I think that there's um, a lot of room for better training within the medical device industry and for marketing. I think there's some great sales training. There's great engineering. There's great, great quality. I don't think there's that we're as good as an industry as we could be in marketing. You are absolutely correct. It is the tail end. It's the first to get laid off and downsized. And it is just um, the budgets. I, we would hire people from outside industry and they're like, wait, what's your budget? We can't do anything. We're like, we know. <laughs> But uh, so I, I spent a lot of years in marketing as well, and I've got got my opinion. I'll share in a second. But what did you like about marketing? What was what was you know what was fun about it? What was career enhancing about it? I loved being the interface between the customer and engineering, and I got to work with engineers who are brilliant and solving these problems, and then go out and work with physicians and the sales force. You know, I just really enjoyed that. And it was very fulfilling to hear the input, take it back, realize it into a product and then launch it. And these doctors are like, you listen to me. There's something really cool about when you're winning. And uh, I've, I've had a lot of dog products that were, you know, you're just slugging it out. Um, and every once in a while, I got a, you know, you get a real winner that you've done everything right. And it's so rewarding. I always told people, you spend like 90% of your time doing stuff that's not fun for that 10% when you launch the big product or get the win. It's, it's this, maybe all roles are like that, but it just seemed like there's a lot, you had to love it. Yeah. I, I came up in the sales side of things and moved, moved over into marketing. And a lot of times what I felt in sales is 
uh, you're, you're, you're like the center of the universe. And when you, when you move out of sales, you realize that that's not quite the case. Um, but when I moved into marketing like you, what I enjoyed most was interfacing with everybody else in the organization. You got the salespeople, you get the clinical, the regulatory, the manufacturing, uh, finance, everybody you're interfacing with. So I always looked at myself as a hub of the wheel from that standpoint, because I was the one who was interfacing with everybody else. Not, not every one of those other functional areas was interfacing with everybody. The other thing for me that was important is I got to spend time with customers and I got to see the realization of what we're doing as a, as a team, as a company, uh, taking it out and benefiting the patients. So I, I got the, I got, I got the interaction with everybody throughout, throughout the, the, uh, the company. Yeah, and you you get to learn so much more about the business. It's fantastic. Did, did that uh, being in marketing for for that many years? Did that prepare you for being a CEO? Uh, yeah, it really did. The other thing that prepared me for being a CEO though was the warning letter and seeing all the things that could go wrong and picked it and getting a higher respect for portions of the business. So, so same thing. I, I may not know manufacturing, but it became apparent to me that if you cannot reliably manufacture something every day consistently, it doesn't matter how good the quote unquote design was. It's like, no, this, this is a, an entire portion of the business that has to function just as important as inventing the product. But yeah, like having an appreciation for sales and how difficult it is and, and having an appreciation for regulatory process and between the two uh, and the, the warning letter really was a eye opener. And I would say for my career, I try to appreciate what I don't know and not just dismiss something as, why don't you just get it done? You know, it's just a mold, just get it done, you know, or something like that. And it's like, no, there's a process, support them, learn it. I, um, we have a manufacturing facility, uh, outsourced, but sits in orange County and Tijuana. And I visited twice, gone across the border, seen them hand building our device, sat at the table, built one myself, um, just, just so I have a respect for it, um, not just assume the magical cloning machine works and out pops a bunch of our product, but you got to be you got to be willing to figure that stuff out, or support it, and appreciate it. You don't have to know it, but you have to appreciate it. Yeah, I, I again, I can empathize with you there too. Uh, one significant thing that happened in, in my career is one of our sister companies had a hip implant that had a, had a problem, a billion dollar lawsuit, and they took our company and, and sold it off. <laughs> it took different pieces and sold it off. And it, and it had nothing to do with the design. It was a change in the manufacturing process. But that change in manufacturing process, even though, as you said, you know, manufacturing is, should be pretty nailed down. If there's one little thing that goes wrong, it can have catastrophic effects for a you know, billion dollar companies. Yep. Yep. So, I, I do love that my product's not implanted anymore. So this is my first class two device. that's not implanted and it's um, you sleep a little easier at night. Not knowing like, Oh, I don't have to cut this out of somebody if it goes wrong. So that's. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about spark. Let's talk about um, what it is. For, uh, and let's start off by talking about, the need what what is the market need there's no shortage of information on the on the opioid epidemic and the impact and death toll it's had um it struggled for coverage though uh it's like everybody knows there's an opioid epidemic but do we really know how bad it is um there is probably 10 million plus americans that are on opioids they can't get off today legitimately prescribed uh, my mom's one of these people she's on 40 milligrams of methadone a day for lyme disease it doesn't work for Lyme disease. It was mismarketed as a chronic pain drug. She can't stop taking it. Um, so you have this huge market of people who did nothing wrong. What we'll say is they're physically dependent on opioids. Um, they're being prescribed. And and to get off, and so then you say, well, why are they still on them? To get off them, you have to go through withdrawal. And opioid withdrawal is a special place in hell. It is brutal. It is it overrides your your logic and your sense of reason because you have a malfunctioning portion of the brain, which is your fight or flight portion of the brain, your amygdala. And that's the part that says run from saber-toothed tigers when you see them immediately. And if it's malfunctioning, you're not in a position of logic to overcome what you think you're going through. It's pure emotion. It's pure sympathetic system just 
railed to the max. And then you have the people who have slid from dependence into full-blown opioid use disorder or addiction. That's another three or four billion Americans. So it's it's a huge problem, very costly for the system. Uh, and the the barrier is withdrawal. We call it the eight hundred pound gorilla, right? You just it's if you cannot pass through withdrawal, you cannot begin recovery. It's in the way uh, for everybody who's on opioids. It's not most. It's not some. It's not fifty percent. Is if you've been on opioids a long time, you're going to go through a horrible withdrawal. Well, the idea came from is some people may remember in the eighties, it was pretty vogue to get acupuncture in the knee, in the ear for um to alleviate smoking sensation so you have a little needle in the ear and you wiggle it every time you have cravings well these network pathways are the same ones we're stimulating just instead of using needles we're pushing electricity directly onto these branches of the cranial nerves that come up around the ear the reason the ear is is just it's been well studied where these branches of the trigeminal nerve and branches of the vagus nerve come up to the surface so you can hit them with electricity through the skin without the need for an implant or, or cutting or a needle or anything. There's actually studies going back to 1947 for alcohol withdrawals using basically electroshock therapy back in the day, but you're, you're, you're recruiting these same nerves. I, I would say here we are in 2021, we have a much more fine, uh, discreet way to apply that electricity. If, it, if you feel a little buzz, there's no shocking or anything. It's like, think of a TENS unit after a few minutes, you don't even remember it's on. We're able to modulate the brain, drive the production, we believe, of endogenous endorphins, which is what opioids replace, and bring down that fight or flight sense. And what we've clinically proven is we can significantly reduce the withdrawal symptoms and improve someone's uh, statistical chance to get through detox and move on to long-term care. What's currently being done to go through that, that intense period? Uh, well, you you choose one of two paths. You either choose to stay on more opioids, uh, which you will remain dependent on or addicted to. Uh, that is the majority of what people do. And so, you've heard of Suboxone, buprenorphine, these drugs. I mean, they're they're or methadone. Methadone is just purely an opioid with no uh, pure uh, agonist with no antagonist element to it. So, so that's what the majority of people do. Those who don't, there's one and only one medicine uh, called Lusamira that's approved on the market to re reduce withdrawal. We call them comfort meds, uh, but otherwise you're getting you're getting meds for nausea, meds for pain, and meds for anxiety to try to get through it. So with these difficult situations, we're trying to get through withdrawal. There, there doesn't seem to be a real good solution on doing that. What? What's the percentage of people who make it through withdrawal? I think if you're going cold turkey without an opioid substitute, um, I think the, the average is less than 25% of people. And it depends on the quality of the facility, uh, which is there's a big disparity across the states, and maybe the quality of the care and your familiar support, like who, who you have to support. But it's, it's 25%. We were at about 53% of people finish the study and but 93 percent of everybody had a clinically meaningful reduction within an hour so we're putting this device also the challenge of doing a study is we had to look at other studies and other data points to power our our results and so we had to put to match what pharma does and everybody we had to put people into moderate withdrawal to pull them out and that's not how you want to practice medicine. What you really want to do is just give the, you know, give this to them as soon as they walk in the door before withdrawals kicking in in four to eight hours, and hopefully they never go into withdrawal. So it's not an ideal way to study. It's the way we had to do this step. But our next study, like you walk in the door, here's the system, put it on. We're, we're, we don't have to prove to anybody we reduce withdrawal. We've proven that. Now we're going to prove better long-term retention. So what does the device look like? It's a little flexible earpiece that just goes over the ear. It's real soft and thin. It's a cable that goes down to a, a little box with batteries that you wear on the belt, carry it around. We try to miniaturize the whole thing and get it up on the ear, but first gen, <laughs> discrete components, and you, you don't miniaturize until you know what you're doing. So it's uh, about the size of an, uh, the big iPhone. So how long is the patient wearing this? We didn't know 
what the halo effect would be and how many hours of stimulation. What we know is withdrawals five to seven days. So they wore it 24 seven the whole time um, because we just, we just went with a sledgehammer approach. Like we didn't want to risk people coming out of withdrawal because the do, you know, they put it on for two hours and then it, the effect wore off four hours later. Anecdotally, we had like half our patients taking it off at night, sleeping through the night and not having much of a rebound in their withdrawal. And they'd wake up in the morning, get the device on, get feeling better. It really speaks that we're modulating the brain well, though, that we have the halo. Um, and then we'll we'll start to figure out dosing studies are the worst. And this is really about dosing the electricity. So we'll start to figure out what the duty cycle really looks like. And then our hypothesis moving forward is you can probably use this for two or three hours a day for what we'll call protracted withdrawal. So you go through five to seven days, you get clean, you then begin treatment. Well, you still feel horrible. Your body's missing a chemical that's been, you know, getting an exogenous chemical, making it feel good for months or years or a decade. And then you've taken it away. So we believe we can continue to stimulate and then help the brain recover and re- return to a natural state. That's our hypothesis. We hope we prove it. Just because your detox doesn't mean you don't have a long pa- path ahead of you. That was just the first big step. Is this a standalone therapy? Or are, you, are people doing it in conjunction with other drugs? Um, well, our labeling says definitely uh, it's an adjunctive therapy with other care. Um, so yeah, you're, you're still going to get comfort meds. You're still going to get some other. We, we allowed non-opioid substitute comfort meds. And then if you get completely clean, then the standard of care is to get a shot called Vivitrol, which is 100% opioid antagonist, stays in the body about 30 days, and it basically prevents you from relapse. So instead of using and getting high and then using again, getting high, uh, it basically blocks the opioid receptors. So if you took heroin or pills or whatever, it would basically bounce out of your nervous system. So you don't relapse. So you just got regulatory approval for this, for this device uh, just a couple months ago, right? January 2nd at 10 PM. <laughs> January 2nd, 2021, 10 PM must've been a, a very, very good night. It was a stressful Christmas and new year's, but yeah, January 2nd was good. Um, and, and how old is the company? We started August 18, uh, 2018. So we were two years and four months uh, from start to approval. That is quick. Uh, we're proud of it. It was, there was a lot of stars aligned. I'm not going to say we were brilliant at it, but we knew what we we knew the device we we're going to make. We knew the clinical, we knew the market opportunity. Me and the founding partners just meshed super well. And it was, it was just the perfect, perfect selection of people to get this to happen. I always tell them, this will never happen again. <laughs> let's let's talk about that uh, that team that you put together. So, what what uh, were the attributes of the people that came in? What functional areas did they cover? So, me and the two founders. So, Alejandro actually has a PhD in neuroengineering and invented the product in his garage because uh, he wanted to make something for migraine. And uh, Naveed has a PhD in neurophysiology. So again, the engineer who knew this, like, and has been here in this industry 20 years. And Alejandro had built wearables before, trigeminal nerve stem on the forehead for uh, ADHD is what it ended up getting an indication. Naveed's uh, an expert and got his PhD in vagus nerve stem and neuroplasticity. And so the scientist, the engineer, and I was the business guy. And it was just a great starting place because we all had the thing. He had to build the product. We had to, Naveed had to design a clinical study and get that going. And I needed to raise money and uh, make sure we had all the pieces in place to get there. And so it worked out real well. And then we added, quickly needed a CFO and picked up somebody. And everybody I'd, that's come on board, I think, except for maybe one or two I've worked with before. And with 20 years in the industry, you get to call on the people that were good and the people you liked working with. And so that's been a real key. Like somebody once I was trying to recruit someone, they didn't want to come work for us. It was the first time I got rejected. I was like, but, but we're awesome. Like we're, we're the, we're the fun <laughs> people to work for. Um, but then uh, Carl came on board as our CFO and was just, you know, was my right hand man. I'd never ra- raised money before. So he was my right hand man and understanding that and understanding the lingo and how it played out. And, um, and super 
smart with business model and and really having somebody who knew how to build a credible business model. I watched I watched investors try to beat him up over and over on it, and he was like, "Nope, I got that right here. Nope, got that right here." And I was I just sit back and smile like I I would have gotten I couldn't even talk to it. I would have gotten roasted, and he was he just crushed it. Needed an operations person, and we also needed a reimbursement person, and ended up picking up Chris Hanna. His company uh, was going bankrupt. He had take it was a neurostim, an implantable neurostim company. He ran operations, took from zero to fifty million dollars. So I was like, "Yep, you can do this." <laughs> like, and uh, he and I worked together back at St. Jude. Great guy, and he happens to teach health economics at SMU uh, as a part time because he used to run reimbursement. So. We needed reimbursement and operations, and the universe served it up. And the only one person in this country that does both and was in Dallas, so it worked out well. Thank so it was a good, well-rounded team. And we got sales and marketing, just ace hitters uh, in that as well. Really held back on hiring sales and marketing until uh, we were way, way down the road. Like, if if you don't have regulatory approval, there's nothing to market. Well, I think the, the other thing is you've got a background in, in marketing, and, and we'll get into some of this customer discovery stuff pretty deep in, in a couple of minutes. But I think it is important to get through, have someone skilled in customer discovery early on within a company. And having the background, having someone on the team with that background is critical. Yeah. And I definitely, I still considered myself the product manager. <laughs> like we have a product manager. I was like, yeah, but I'm still sort of the product manager. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I love it. And I'm, I'm going out in the field and I'm working on making sales right, right with the salespeople and uh, doing doc dinners, even solo, uh, just because the, you just don't know if you don't get in the field, what, what we need to, you know, react. And we had assumptions and many are wrong and a couple are right. And we're, we're adjusting. Startups don't always need everybody inside initially. Were there, were there some things or are there some things that you've outsourced? Yeah, I outsource uh, almost all development. Um, I don't want a big engineering team. Uh, they're they're expensive and then they cost a lot of money in between projects. So you're always doing projects, although we are always doing projects. But I have a great partner. Uh, we have uh, most of our development being done by uh, a firm here in um and uh, Katie, Texas called Valentium and they match our personalities and they actually, and then they're also are part of our manufacturing we've outsourced to. So I don't like lots of employees. It's just complicates things. I like contracts with another good firm with its own leadership and that we can interact with. Most people can't believe the budget we did this on. We, we really, uh, we all worked from home and that seemed crazy to build a medical device company from home in 2018. But about mid 2020, we looked brilliant. Like, oh, we've already mastered this working from home thing. <laughs> and um, it was just, but there was in the beginning, I was like embarrassed. Like, no, we don't have an office. We just work from home. You know, my dog's walking behind me. Uh, you hear someone bark, doorbells ring. And so it felt weird. And then now it's just normal life. So it's like, well, that, that worked out real well for us. Yeah. So you had uh, uh, in the past in your career, you had some regulatory challenges. What did you do for setting up your, your regulatory system? Uh, First thing I did was I, I bought Greenlight Guru to be our quality management system. So we had a fully validated uh, system of record that walked us through the correct design controls. Alejandro's done remediation as a consultant before, so he he knows. So we were like, no, we're doing things right. We're not, I don't want a warning letter. I want to pass audits with flying colors. So we just, we followed the, put in good quality management system, ended up uh, hiring a full-time regulatory person when we could uh, afford it. And, you know, just making sure we're just doing everything right. Uh, and then our partners have really good quality systems too. So they, you know, we can depend on their engineering work and their, their background and their testing uh, really, really where it comes down to you. Did you do all the design controls correct so that the tests really do give you confidence the product's going to work? Uh, clinical, did you outsource that? No, we didn't. We, we were a single site. And it was pretty controllable. We hired a 1099 who who ran it. We just didn't need a CRO. So we ran it all ourselves and crushed. The data is fantastic, too. They the FDA gave us some pushback and we went back to the data and we discovered more data that we had collected that was even better. We're like, oh, look at this. <laughs> like, So really just good, good, solid work. I'm really proud of it. So it's not published yet, but there's a white paper you can download from our website that has the interim analysis. Really proud of it. So the regulatory pathway was what? It was a 510K. Uh, we followed an acupuncture device 
which we weren't sure if they were going to say 510K or go de Nova because one has needles and one has hydrogels. Uh, but we were able to 510K this. I might as well have been a de Novo. It was actually 510K pathway ended up being. You're, getting, you're trying to compare with clinical. Yeah, with you know, definitely with clinical. And, you know, there was a moment where we're like, maybe we can get this approved without clinical. That would have been the dumbest mistake we ever made. So we learned so much. The product became better during the clinical study. We did it right. We have a randomized controlled trial with great results and class one evidence. So, and that really is back to marketing. It's a great marketing piece. If you have, you do that right, it's, it's great for marketing. Yeah, I launched a product uh, that was... Uh, that we we're, were able to get through with 510k uh, with all clinical data and then when you go and hit the marketplace and your customer says okay it sounds great but where's the clinical data it hamstrings you it really does yep what's the market size so three to four million americans uh have o- diagnosed opioid use disorder and either abusing heroin fentanyl or pills uh, and then there's about 10 to 11 million Americans that are misusing or overusing prescription opioids that just can't dial them down because of physical dependency. So pretty, pretty big market. Daniel, what, what's the business model? Are you selling? Are you leasing? Are you, do you have disposables? What's the business model look like? Uh, boy, that's such a good question. Cause we're kind of figuring that out as we go. Uh, we're testing different models. We're testing distributors. Uh, there's no reimbursement, which is definitely an uphill battle. That was probably one of the biggest things w- we face uh, with a new device. You basically sell it to a doctor and they resell it to the patient or they write a prescription and the patient buys it from us, uh, which we haven't implemented. We didn't really want to put in all that HIPAA stuff just right now and spend all that money. So we're just selling it through the doctor. Um, what's, the list, what's the list price on the device? Uh, I think starter kit's $1,500, but we are playing with the lease model. If, if your detox is over in seven to 10 days, do you really need to own the device? When I describe the vision that you keep this for the next three, four months, the system was always designed to go there and, until we have that expanded label indication. We're, we're playing around with some lease models. Luckily, we labeled it all for reuse, and then the earpieces are disposable. So you peel the back off. They have hydrogel and hydro colloid, which is the medical adhesive, stick it on the ear, lasts for about 24 hours, and you throw it away. And so I assume <clears throat> you are setting things up for reimbursement. Yes, that is number one priority now, is, yeah. is to get that moving. So it, what a, it, and what a complicated world that is uh, and, and a moving target. So you have workers comp, you have CMS, true government reimbursement, and then you have the privates. And so it's almost three different strategies. Like what is Blue Cross Blue Shield and United? What might interest them? And then what do I have to do to go get on the CMS? And oh, and then you have VA and all their schedules and all the government stuff. So really there's four four legs to this that you got to kind of figure out which one you're going to be good at first. Well, it's a fascinating product. It's a, a, <clears throat> just a, a tremendous need out there. Bring a solution into some place that has searched for an answer for a long time is really great. And I really applaud you and the team for bringing this, bringing this forward and wish you nothing but success oh, uh, in, 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 in bringing it, getting it adopted and getting it paid for. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's, it's very rewarding to work on it and uh, the world needs it and we know it. So it, it gives, it gets us up early and drives us every day. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into customer discovery because you've lived through it with many of the different opportunities you've you've uh, been involved with, including this one. So you've spent the last two years and really going through and developing a product, but a lot of that was, I'm sure, customer discovery. But let's just talk broader a little bit about customer discovery. And I'll just kind of separate in to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. So there's there's one step of that is identifying a need, identifying an idea. And then once you have that idea, that's where, where I'll refer to that as customer discovery and how you how you go and do methodically using a scientific method to um, really understand and validate all of your assumptions. So let's let's just take the, the you know kind of the the first step on identifying uh, a need, identifying a potential product. Did you did you have processes you know how did you do that uh, i was at a previous company where i met alejandro and navid and they wanted to use alejandro's 
uh, ear stimulator uh, that all he had invented. And, and we had a spreadsheet. I think this will answer what you're asking. And it was like, okay, what can we chase? And we had migraine and we had depression and we had stroke recovery and we had the list because it was like, we have a widget, where are we going to apply it? So that's how the, I kind of solved this product. Mm-hmm. And the auricular neurostem is just very popular and getting a lot of papers. So there's just like, ah, we can, you know, we can help this, we can help that. The question is, can we help it enough and uh, to be impactful? And one thing that I've seen over and over is, let's go after migraine. Why? It's huge, huge market. Let's go after migraine. I was like, yeah, but it's hard. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so let me outline why it's hard. There's three other neurostimulators already on the market. There's 82 medications or whatever it is. They keep coming up with better formulations for it. Yes, it's an unmet need. Yes, it's miserable. But the people who aren't getting migraine relief, are we going to be so special that we break the barrier? Okay, if not, then we're just one of four neurostimulation products and for migraine. And by the way, migraine studies are notoriously difficult. Reduce number of headaches per month or whatever you're, you're measuring. It's very subjective, um, like anything pain. Same with depression. Huge problem. Tough, tough clinical to run. A lot of subjectivity. Um, when I saw this, it was like, so you're telling me someone goes from laying on the ground in a fetal position, losing their mind to sitting in a chair, smiling in an hour, and they've stopped sweating and they've stopped running to the bathroom and they got their wits about them and they're happy. I was like that. Those, I like studies like that. Oh, and it's five days. <laughs> it's a five day endpoint, not a one year follow up. It's a five days. So we walk through, what do we apply this to? Look at market size, look at what is it really? And that's, you got to get, and then sometimes you're going to be wrong. And that's where you can't probably swear we're going to go with the conversation. You don't hold on to it. If you're wrong, like, no, I'm going to make this work. Like I, yeah, I think uh, that's a really interesting, in- interesting way of looking at it because there's some things where you're out searching for needs and then applying technology. Sometimes you're, you're cert- you've got a technology and you're searching for needs. One of the problems that you run into is, you know, the old saying, you know, if, if you've got a, your ha- a hammer in your hand, the whole world looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And that's when you run into, you know, I got, Hey, I got a, uh, I, I got a, a device, a neurostem device, an ECG, I've got, you know, whatever, whatever type of device. And now I'm going to go search for a market to look at, you know, to, to do that. And you really have to understand what your product is and is there a need there? Mm-hmm. And, and so if you, if you go down that route, you have to make sure that it's a clear need, as you said, otherwise you're just going to be noise in a, in a crowded marketplace. Yeah. Uh, there's other systems that people have that that are looking for mm-hmm. needs, true needs without a product, and then looking for a product that, that there as well. So we're, we're, let's let's leave that kind of behind us. Let's let's assume that you've got you've identified a need. You've identified a need, and now you've also identified a technology that can solve that need. The classic, you know, definition of customer discovery is really kind of in in this in this phase, and it comes from Steve Blank and and Eric Ries' work uh, in the lean startup methodology. That's really where where uh, this customer discovery stuff, and it's just it's fairly recent, 2010, but it's really questioning all the core assumptions that you have, and it's questioning the different customer types that are out there as well. And it's using a scientific method to validate all of your all of your assumptions. So let's talk about that a little bit and how you, you know, again, prior to 2010, I know you've got experience that way too, but it's it's a similar mindset that you have to have in really running down everything about an idea. Um, I got my training from pragmatic marketing. It's uh, an, an amazing upstream marketing. Uh, program I it was back when I took it um, didn't just teach the elicitation but dropped it into a framework of the rest of the business and all the others projects to solve so that you just didn't sit there in this one little vacuum looking at one you know task mapping process or whatever but you started to think of all the different components uh, in this process I, I will wrap in I, I believe in rapid prototyping from low fidelity to high fidelity and I don't need more than seven or eight people on a prototype normally to go, oh, that's broken, that's broken, stop using it. I got. I know what six things I have to fix before I can even get a better answer. 
Um, so I really love, I mean, usability and rapid prototyping and then, and then real world val validation is key. Um, I'll throw out one other thing that I discovered along the way, especially if you're in a competitor market. So I had a deep brain stimulation system and Medtronic had a deep brain stimulation system. And so I had to figure out what to fix to compete because we were losing their implant was a little smaller than ours. So since that goes in the pectoral region of the chest, that's a big deal. Like how much smaller? Um, and then you walk through all the features. I really like conceptually the Cano model, K-A-N-O, which says, what are my must haves to be in this ballgame? And say, I was always having to fight the engineers or argue with management for the budget to get this product into a competitive winning position. And I really like this model if you're working on a competitive product. So you go, you map out what are the must haves? What are the nice to haves? And it fits in this graph. And I never, I admit, I've never like super formally did it. It just conceptually always drove. And then you have a performance line going through the middle. And this is it's really useful to explain to engineers. So you don't understand on this performance line, those are things that are measured. They, their download time is 20 seconds and ours is seven minutes. Like, so I don't need to get it to five minutes. I need to get it into a competitive range. So it lets you map out, again, uh, those type of measurements basic features, must-haves, nice-to-haves. And then it has this one part that I love, and it's called wow factors. And you put two, three, four ideas that are Hail Marys in it, and hopefully one of them becomes a new must-have in future generations because you've taken the lead. And I always run into people who are like, well, how much more money is that going to make? I don't know. I, I, I know I need like three wow features that nobody has and I don't know which one's going to be most popular. Um, and I, I can go try, but customers lie to you. <laughs> they, they all, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd have three patients a week in this. No problem. And then, you know, a month later, no, I don't have any patients. You're like, what? <laughs> um, well, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting uh, way of looking at it. As you go through that, you're talking to a lot of different customers. How many customers do you talk to and, 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 and how many do you need? And, and when is it too much? I have talked to over 107 once, but it was a three-year project. And, you know, you're just con continually engaging. And, you know, you go to a conference and you can talk to 20 docs and you're hitting it. You tend to know a lot. I get about eight to 10 people. Um, but it, it depends on how diverse your crowd is. So, like, we sell into pain where doctors have a bunch of pain patients on high opioids. And we're say, say, selling into behavioral health where addiction recovery facilities have patients addicted and they're definitely nothing the same. And in part of the requirement discovery, like I'll share, like, you know, the pain doc tells the patient, I'm going to sell this to you. And the person up front is going to ring you out and, and you have this consultation. The person going into rehab, we discovered along the way, like what was the journey of the patient? What's the workflow? They pay their money over the phone as their insurance is taken to pay for rehab. And at that point in time, they go, well, would you like to spend more money for spa therapy? You know, so the people going to Florida are like, yes, I would like a back rub every day. And would you like equine therapy? And would you like a private room? And that's where it's sold. Because by the time they show up to the facility, they don't have a credit card and they're not in a buying mood. They're pretty miserable. And so the entire sales process needed to be discovered, not just the design inputs. Uh, and, and drove it and then it's like, uh, okay, how's that going to look? And where's the product going to be? And starts to drive packaging and, and distribution decisions. Like, well, they kind of need to have it on the shelf. Once you're in withdrawal, it's too late. Uh, so you're the affects your logistics plan and your collections plan and your, you know, okay, well, doctors don't like paying for expensive things, put it on their shelf and then hope to sell it. So you got to give them terms so they can make their money before they pay you. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's a really good point because many people think that customer discovery just involves the product, the product being the hardware. Yeah. And that's not the product. The product is everything and everyone who's involved with that technology. So it's it's not only the people who are using it or implanting it, but it's the people in supply chain. It's the payers. It's the GPOs. Mm -hmm. It's the people in the stock rooms. Each one of those has some interaction with your product. Yeah. And every one of those could end up making or breaking you. Every one of those, those groups 
could put a big fly in your ointment. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. And we ran into that. We're like, okay, well, this this type of nerves in this type of setting, they're like, they're they're not trained to sell. And you gotta sell because it's cash pay. So well, do I have to have a salesperson in the office all the time? Well, that's that's not scalable. So the answer is no. <laughs> How do I, you know? And we're solving some of those problems like videos. The more videos, the better. You make your training, you make your sales p- pitch repeatable. So we have all those in development, like like help help the doc sell. A lot of times, you know, we we talk about our successes with uh, with with different programs that we do, but we also have failures. Uh, so we launch products, and when we, when we do the analysis at the end when they don't work, we say, "Oh boy, I missed on that in customer discovery." And I've I've had that experience in the past. Have you have you had it as well? I had it with this product. Uh, we're halfway through development. And we had a rechargeable battery in it. And we're like, this is a freaking disaster. Like, the, the, like, and the battery was draining so fast. We had to buy a USB battery rechargers and then buy everybody fanny packs in the clinical study so they could wear their, their stimulator and their USB charger and have it charging all day. So it didn't run because mm-hmm. we also didn't know it, it, whether it needed to last 24 hours. So halfway through the project, we ripped it out and put double A batteries in. I was like, double A batteries, they're everywhere. Just, I was like, like idiot proof this, that we can't have a non-charged battery cause us to lose a patient. So, yeah. Uh, and I was, <laughs> it, was it was a pain. It's customer needs. Yeah. It's, it's customer needs. It's, it's something that, um, that you didn't document or didn't think of when you started the project. Yeah. And I think that that's that's also some, something that's pretty interesting. Is customer needs document doesn't start and 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 you put it away. It it's something that evolves during the process. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, again, design is iterative. It should be if it's you just never get it right the first time. And so as you iterate, as you do low fidelity, as you go out and have interviews, and then interviews and discover nuances, things change. Then you have prototypes, things change. You're on the road building it. Um, and then that's the beauty of clinical studies. If you do need them, you're going to learn more and hopefully you have time to pivot. Um, and yeah, that document's going to live and grow. And then sometimes it's going to have ideas and hypothesis on it that you're like, I think this needs to be looked at more, but I don't know. And so, so how do you, when you identify those areas where you've got an hypothesis, how do you validate that hypothesis or throw it out? Well, I think this is where you need to have customers and you walk and it goes back to, you're going to tell them what your solution is. Let's say you don't have prototypes yet and to go validate it. Did they hear you correctly? Did they, and I love this one. Well, I could do it, but I don't know if other people would be able to understand that. Like, oh, it's, don't tell me what you think other people can do. Doc, doctors love to do that. Um, I mean, me, I'm everybody, I'm special. I kind of have my own way of doing this. <laughs> You're like, oh, mm-hmm. I know we're all specials, but could you just answer the question? You get wrong answers a lot because they project what they think other people's behaviors. And they're also not trained in doing this where you hopefully are. They're not thinking about the company and everything. They're just sort of answering. So you do have to, um, what, what did Herb Keller, the CEO of Southwest airlines say, uh, everybody, uh, the customer's always right. And sometimes they know what they're talking about. <laughs> that's the opening, uh, opening line in his book nuts. Um, that's, that's really, really interesting because, uh, I think we we also have to understand that sometimes we're listening for the answers we want to hear. So yep. sometimes we're our own worst enemies when somebody says something and we say, "Oh, that that's it. You know, I'll yeah. move on to the next question." You, you validated. You made me feel good. Moving on. Yeah. So how do you how do you prevent that from happening, or how do you get valid feedback as opposed to what you you know what what uh, someone is telling you they think you want to hear or what you want to hear? We spent the first four months trying to kill this business once started it because we we're like, like is this really going to work? Is this not, not? But I mean, really willing to not go forward. We didn't have to make that. We wanted this work. We we're hopeful. But we we went into this because we'd all seen failed startups. Who I mean, they're all over the place, and I, I mean, you're watching them go down over and over in our industry. And I was like, how do we not be that? And one of the strategies, yeah, we're really willing to walk away from it, and we really just 
did not did not assume we we knew how this was going to work out. That's what that's what you point out is it's one of the challenges of being a startup CEO. On the one hand, you want to project we're going to get through this. We're going to solve it. We're going to have the grit to stay with it and perseverance. And on the other hand, there's things that's coming that that, uh, that come at you early on when you're a startup where you really have to question. Is this a is this a stopper? Is this are we wasting our time here? Can I take my resources and go on to the next thing that's going to have a higher probability of success? We had about two or three million in the bank that was not to be touched, and we run the clinical trial. So I said, "What if the clinical trial fails?" And I was like, "I think I just give everybody their money back. Like, here's your pro rata money back. Like, I'm not going to sit here and keep burning money. It was it was on the table. We knew the product worked." We knew the clinical trial was great. We knew we were all professionals that did class three devices. This was class two. And we still barely by the skin of our teeth got through the FDA. Not because of anything we did, uh, because they didn't have a single addiction specialist. They accepted a probably a, a, the worst clinical study as evidence to compare against us as a, as a comparator that's been that they've been written up by NPR and lambasted forever accepting that study. And they were, they used it against us. And we we're like, you're on record for this. Um, and there's this binary event that I either was CEO of a successful company or I was shutting it down. And when I said January 2nd, it's a Saturday night on a holiday weekend at 10 PM. I get the approval. Cause that was the day they have a timer. They had 90 days to do it. And they'd already stopped and, and messed with the timer in weird ways and already cost us an extra four months. I mean, you imagine they're, they're routing stuff through and signing it at 10 p.m. on a holiday weekend. Because <laughs> that was, they took every bit of their time and they burned it up. And, uh, and it, was, it was very, very worrying. I mean, yeah, and I had to project, we're in this, we got this. In the back of my mind, I mean, CFO were making contingency plans like, how much money do we have if this goes bad? Yeah, it was some really stressful, stressful, stressful days. And I, I will say I might, <laughs> I might raise my voice time or two on calls with the FDA. I'm like, this is people's jobs and careers. And there's like this huge need, like we're doing everything right. What do you want? So, um, yeah. Kind of going back to the development and some of the issues you just raised there. So as a startup, you've got a finite amount of money. You're, you're going to raise money and you're going to raise it against a plan. And the plan, said, you know, generally what people do with plans is they, they plan it if, as if everything's going to go right. Um, sometimes you'll put an iteration or two in the development side. Some people forget that. And then when they go to iterate, all of a sudden they're, they're out of money. So tell, tell, talk to me a little bit about this customer discovery portion and setting expectations with investors. Huh. Well, just to say we're on rev F of our board. So it's, it was more, Got it. we're, we're planning on rev D, uh, C and we were on rev F. <laughs> so you want by board, you're not talking about board of directors. No, you're no about printed circuit boards. Yeah. Thank you. No, it, printed circuit it. board. Yeah. So money budget. Yeah. Everything costs twice as much and took twice as long. Uh, I am lucky. My CFO padded that budget. Uh, we we actually were um, within a thousand dollars of our but of our twenty twenty budget. I think he waited to pay a couple bills just so he could brag. But you, you know, you. So I, w- I want to stop on a second because we hear this so often. It's it's kind of uh, you know one of those things. Oh yeah, it co- co- takes twice as long, costs twice as much. Is that true? Yes. Things will go wrong. Things will go wrong. You never anticipated something. And actually, raising money was it's probably the least of your worries. It, it's you get you got humans involved. You know you have one of your engineers just doesn't do it right. Uh, whatever they're building, you got our first clinical study was set to open, and we get a call from a, like IRB approved contracts and everything, and we get a call from I won't name the place, but the university it was a university hospital attorney. And they were like, you cannot run a clinical study here. And I got on the phone and I'm like, oh, excuse me, like, this has already gone through legal. And she goes, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not safe here. We're like, not safe. And it was because they were sending criminals through the behavioral health system. 
And she was like, we, we have multiple assaults, especially on females. You can't run a clinical study here. Something bad will happen. We're like, Oh my gosh. Like, thank, like actually it was like thanking the lawyer. She wasn't being a, an attorney blocking. She was like saving our company. Um, so I do think of, you know, any number of those things. Thanks so much for this, you know, the discussion on customer discovery. I think it's one of the things that as an industry, we can really do better. And I, I like the approach that you took and some of the wow factor stuff. I thought that that was really, really interesting. Uh, there's other people that have other systems and lean startup method and things like that there that they're utilizing. But I think there's a difference between customer discovery in big companies and small companies. Did you see it different? Yeah. Well, in big companies, you're che- you could just be checking the box so that, you know, the stuff goes and you know, you're so insulated from failure. It's not as much on the line, especially if it's an existing product. But a small company, it's so many, so much more unknown and you kind of don't have any, any safety net if you're wrong. What I've seen too is that the small company is going to do all of that validation because their their life is on the line. The big company sometimes gets fat, dumb, and happy. Yeah. And you know, I know my customers, I know the application, and I'm not going to go and double check assumptions that I had. And you got a lot more politics going on, so now it's just about the schedule or sales or whatever. Um, I worked for a company that was really kind of had a met had, had some problems. And one of my employees says like, well, this place is going to fall apart fast. They'll be out of business. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I said, it'll take them years to figure out. It would take them seven years of doing everything wrong before it catches up with them. I mean, it's really fascinating. And you're over here just passionate and believing we need to fix this. And but and then you have a record quarter of sales. And it's like nobody believes you. And it's like this these culture problems are going to come to roost eventually, but it, it takes a long time because you said you get momentum, fat, dumb, and happy. You have the infrastructure manufacturing's working. Yeah, you can make a lot of mistakes for a long time, or or one big well, Dan- one, but I mean that's yeah, unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. D- Daniel, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. It was a really a, a interesting conversation. But I'd like to take you back to uh, your twenty six year old self and uh, think about. Uh, you've been in the industry now for going on 20 years and uh, you were, you didn't come from the industry, but think back to somebody who was like you were back when you were 26, what would you tell them if they wanted to make medical device a career? I'd, I'd absolutely encourage it. Uh, I just absolutely love this field. I just didn't know anything when I was trying my early entrepreneurial. Also, I didn't have YouTube or anything that you can study and learn so much on your, on your own. Um, but there was something invaluable for me, actually getting training, getting training in product, product marketing, elicitation, getting, getting to go to those pragmatic marketing classes when I was first moved over into marketing and then getting to really see how everything works and really absorbing it. And I didn't really get good at that till I was my thirties. Um, so I don't identify with super successful young entrepreneurs because I was not one. <laughs> I was unsuccessful young entrepreneur. And then I turned around one day and I'd learned everything about this business and all this and seen so much. And when it was time to be a CEO, I was like, oh, I think I got this. This is my first time as CEO. Um, I did go Google, what does a CEO do? I will admit it. Um, and I will tell you what a CEO does. Sets the vision, number one onboards the right talent to execute the vision number two and number three make sure money's in the bank and i was like okay i know what my goals are this year um this is my responsibility i got amazing partners and we support each other and we we treat each other with grace and and forgiveness if something isn't perfect things happen we have kept blame out of the company pretty pretty well and kept a positive work environment actually learning real skills and how to apply them helped tremendously then go down the entrepreneur route. What do you like about working in the industry? You get to help people and get paid for it. As you know, we have our baby product for babies born dependent on opioids and I get to help babies. That's so cool. So there's just something back to your point earlier, being in the field. I remember the first patient 
I saw after that, I watched their surgery, watched their head get cut open while a deep brain stimulator lead was driven into the middle of the brain, met them in recovery while they, well, they were awake on the table actually, and watched them sign their name. They had Parkinson's sign their name for the first time in 10 years and they're crying and you're crying and the doc's like kind of crying and you're like, this is so amazing. Like if you see, that's the beauty of being in the field and and that's why if you are in the field and other people aren't, you have to bring those stories back. You have to bring that experience back to those people who don't get to see firsthand. But I, I love it. Wow, that was a lot of fun to do. Daniel had some great information and a lot of good tips and a lot of good stories on, uh, on his journey and a lot of good things in that customer discovery area. So a few of my takeaways here. First of all, I really liked when he talked about wow factors, not only the nice to haves and need to haves, but the wow factors and bringing those in. And I, I like that it was not just just one, but multiples, because you may not get one and all of a sudden now you've got zero. In addition to that, you don't know which ones are, are uh, really going to pop with, uh, with your customers. But most of all, I like it because it forces you to stretch. It forces you to do things that you wouldn't normally do and to see how far you can take it. And that's, that's where the real gold is uh, for, for your customers. So I really, really like that wow factor. Secondly, uh, he talked about uh, fig- st- still figuring out his business model. And that's what startups do. Startups uh, are, are temporary organizations that are looking for product market fit. Having the humility to say, hey, we haven't figured it out yet. Well, that's what good CEOs do is they have that humility and they say, oh, we're still trying to get this thing figured out because product market fit is what you need to have in order to scale the company. So product market fit is really, it, it means you know you've, you found a good market uh, and, and you've uh, developed a product that can satisfy that market. And, and that's what he's trying to do because the product is the hardware, but it's also the, the offering that you have. And the market, you really have to understand what is your market. He explained that it may be the doctor, it may be the patient, it may be you know, leasing, it may be sales. All of those things are, are yet to be determined in this uh, early commercialization. And finally, the last thing is make sure whatever feedback you're getting is real. It, it has to be real. Don't delude yourself that you're hearing uh, you know, the, the things that you want to hear. Dig deeper every time someone's giving you feedback. Keep going back to the why and why and why. Just keep digging deeper and deeper. That's how you're really going to get to uh, the, the, the real information that's coming back, because if you build your, build your house on, on sand, you know what you're going to get. In customer discovery, you really have to understand the real needs of the customer and get the, the true feedback, not what you want to hear or what they think you want to hear. Thank you for listening. Please spread the word and tell a friend or two to listen to the Mastering Medical Device podcast as interviews like today's can help you become a more effective medical device leader. Work hard. Be kind.